This is Media Business Matters, the podcast about why recent news in the media business matters to people who love media. Amanda Lotz is away this week. I'm Alex Entner. The Cinetopia Film Festival just wrapped up its 10-day run in Southeast Michigan, and Media Business Matters was there to take in the festivities. I was there to learn about the business of film festivals and their importance to getting films distribution. Later on in the episode, you'll hear from some of the filmmakers whose film screened at the festival. But first, Ariel Wan joined us in North Quad Studios. Ariel is the Director of Marketing and Programming for the Michigan Theater and Cinetopia. She's here to talk about the, quote, media business of a film festival. Ariel, welcome to Media Business Matters. Thank you. So, first of all, tell our listeners a little bit about the Cinetopia Film Festival, why it was founded, what role it plays at the Michigan, and maybe in the larger community as a whole. Yeah, so Cinetopia Film Festival, we're in our seventh year this year. Um, It was started seven years ago primarily because there wasn't a film festival that curated independent films available in the area. So the Ann Arbor Film Festival is a very popular film festival, and that uh, film festival is actually um, strictly experimental films. Although um, this year they actually um, broadened it a little bit and introduced um, a documentary called The Big House, because obviously there's a huge connection with that film, which we are also showing at Cinetopia this year. Yeah, the Screen Arts and Culture Department yes. at the University of Michigan was very highly involved in right. that I one. Right, th- there were, I think there's like 12 directors. Yeah. <laughs> and I think four of them are showing up. The Michigan Theater Foundation's goal is to show as much art house films as possible, and what a better way to do it than to cram, you know, 40-plus films in 10 days. Yeah. So that was started, and it started primarily in Ann Arbor, Uh, I think Mm -hmm. the first two years, it was just Ann Arbor, and I think it was only three days, and um, they showed it at the Michigan at the state, and then the third year, uh, we expanded to Detroit. Uh, We got a really very generous grant from the Knight Foundation to expand in Detroit, so then we were able to include the um, DFT, which is the Detroit Film Theater in the DIA. Mm -hmm. The College for Creative Studies became a really great partner, the Charles Wright Museum, the Henry Ford eventually, and the Arab, the Arab American National Museum. So that's how it all. That's how it started. Um, we're in our seventh year this year, and our program is fifty-two films in total. We're in nine venues. Um, Most of them across De- the Detroit met or Detroit and. Dearborn and the two in Ann Arbor, right? Right. And then there's also outdoor screenings. We have some free outdoor screenings. Yeah, I saw too. a couple of those on the schedule. Most yeah. of them are known quantities, like yes. Princess Bride and Loving Vincent. Right. There's going to be a few at the Freck, which is the Ford Resource and Engagement Center. Okay. Um, the titles for those movies are still TBD because they happen after Cinetopia. The, they happen after the 11 days of Cinetopia. Okay, so they're like keeping the festival right. going. The right. Montclair Film Festival, I, I get a lot of emails from them. They're doing a lot. They're doing a lot of outdoor screenings okay. in like parks in Montclair, and they yeah. just had their festival, so of mm-hmm. course I just got a ton of notes about right. them. So we are a media business podcast, and of course that means that we do need to talk about the business and break down kind of financials. So let's go through what the costs are to the Michigan Theater and the Theater Foundation and the Cinetopia Festival, and where the sources of revenue come Mm -hmm. from. I want to say it probably costs around $500,000 to run the entire festival. That is a not insubstantial number. No, it is not, but it is, it's actually very tiny compared to other film festivals. Mm-hmm. 
we recently went to um, the Cleveland International Film Festival in Cleveland, Ohio, mm-hmm. and um, they are actually one of our inspirations of how to model a film festival. Yeah. Um, and their operation, I mean, they've been, their film festival's been running for decades, and we're a very, very young festival. <laughs> so, you know, just seeing how they kind of run their festival, just seeing the, the sheer number of staff and volunteers, we're nowhere near that. They, I don't think they shared with us how much it costs to run their festival, but it's got to be in the in a, a couple of millions to run a festival. Um, for us, we probably break even every single year. Okay. Um, the majority of our revenue actually comes from sponsorship, um, as do a lot of nonprofit organizations. So these are like corporations or university yes. entities or things like that putting money toward you guys in return Correct. for billing and credit at screenings. Correct, yes. Um, so sponsors come in at all different levels. Um, they usually, you know, if they sponsor the entire festival, they get they give us, you know, X amount and we give them recognition. This year we are doing a new thing, uh, which is called host committees, which is our individual uh, people donors that sponsor individual films. Um, and then they get recognition from their film. They have the opportunity to address the audience prior to it. Um, and there's just some special perks of being a host committee. And we've brought in some revenue from, from them as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, I would probably say a little bit more than half comes from sponsorships okay. and donations. And then the other part is just operating, operating the festival and revenue from ticket sales or mm-hmm. past sales. Although um, the majority really does come from just generous donations and sponsorships from corporations. Since you mentioned uh, tickets and passes, you guys sell both single tickets to Mm -hmm. individual screenings as well as passes, which get you into, I believe you have four ticket passes and then festival and movie passes, or all passes for all the movies as well. Mm -hmm. Which of those is more valuable to you? Mm -hmm. If that's even a reasonable question, if that's not, feel free to throw that back at me and tell me why. Yeah, I would probably say that the, between the festival and the movie pass, the all movie pass, we can't call it a movie pass anymore, (laughs) Um, the all movie pass, those are probably the most valuable um, because... Mm -hmm. They're, you know, they're a set price, and we've priced it where, you know, if, a re- if someone's really hungry for movies during Cinetopia, uh, and they use their pass, and they see more than eight films, for example. Like, the all-movie pass, I think the break-even is eight films. Yeah. So if they plan on seeing more than eight films, this movie pass is just the greatest value for them. Mm-hmm. For us to have this pass available and to price it at that point... Our assumption is most people probably won't see eight films because that is very ambitious for an 11-day festival. We really hope that people get passes. But the the other reason why we hope people get passes is because of the perks that come with the pass. Mm. So when you when you buy a pass to a film festival, you get priority admission to the film. So if you're a, a ticket holder you might not get into the film if it's filled up. Yeah, I noticed that on your website. Does that happen a fair amount? For We try to program it and schedule it so that we know like the ones that are really popular are going to be in a larger screen theater. Mm -hmm. Um, The ones that are in a very small theater capacity, we don't actually sell tickets at all. Yeah, I noticed the annex at the Michigan Theater, which is this tiny little 60-seat space. Yeah, it's a 60-seat space. The State Theater, uh, Theater 4 
or theater three, I think is only like 45 or something. Um, so we don't sell tickets to those theaters. I I anticipate a lot of people are going to have tickets, but can't get in. Mm -hmm. Um, but you never know, you know, we have 600, maybe 700 passes out there between Mm -hmm. people who had purchased it and then like sponsor passes and guest passes, filmmaker passes, if they all went to every single screening, that's great for us because <laughs> that just, you know, that's a gigantic numbers of people coming to the film festival mm-hmm. because that's a actually a really big requirement when we're applying for, when we're trying to get sponsors or trying to um, get uh, grants for Cinetopia is, you know, they want to know your attendance number. So if your attendance is really high, that usually gets a lot of um, interested companies wanting to sponsor because they know mm-hmm. that there's a huge audience. And they know that they'll be seeing, like, the logo right. projected on the screen at the beginning. Right, and stuff. right. Yeah. And that's one of the ways that we that really captures their attention is prior to all the screenings, there's always a rotation of slides, mm-hmm. and it includes, you know, thanking our sponsors and any kind of messaging. Yeah. Um, any promotion? Do you promote other films in the festival in those slides? Yes, we do. We have, like, a running just slide of all the other films that are playing. Mm-hmm. And in addition to our, you know, sponsor, like, thank you to the sponsor slide. And then um, any, like, free outdoor stuff or, like, ticketing policies, seating policies, pick up your trash, please, policies. (laughs) (laughs) For listeners who have been listening to, uh, who listen to us regularly, um, you probably remember that we had Russ Collins on the show um, at the beginning of, of last year. And when we had him on, we talked about the Michigan Theater Auditorium. Yes. 1,800 seats must be very difficult to pick up after a screening like that. Yes, and we're actually, the main theater is getting um, a facelift. We're getting new seats, finally. It's, uh, I am very happy about yes. that. Yes. <laughs> um, these will be completely new seats. The old seats um, have been there since 1928. Mm-hmm. Um, some hardware was placed in the 70s, and so now we're getting brand new seats on the main floor. So our capacity is going to be down to 1,600 um, but still, 1,600 seats. That's a cash. lot for a movie theater. Yes. I, I tried. I actually, one of the, we had a kid's show during the day, and um, not enough janitors showed up, so we all kind of picked up a broom, and uh, and we just started sweeping, and to sweep in between those seats, I, I don't know how they do it. Yeah. My arm was sore after just <laughs> two rows of sweeping. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, I posed all these questions about business mm-hmm. for you. Do these questions really matter? In the end, because, I mean, this is, I guess this is a question about Cinetopia's goals. Like, Mm -hmm. is your goal to make money or, you know, does the money come secondary to other things? Right. Um, I think, you know, as a nonprofit organization, um, at least right now, because Cinetopia is under the Michigan Theater Foundation umbrella, the goal of it is not to make uh, a profit, I guess. I guess that's the nonprofit. I mean, nonprofits (laughs) make money, but they make money differently than for profits. Right. The financials, it should matter. You know, this is my first year working for, working with the foundation and also um, Cinetopia. And I've noticed that whenever I ask details about finances, it's very um, like generalized and a little mm-hmm. bit vague. <laughs> um, so when I looked at their numbers, it frustrated me because my previous role, I, I worked in a for-profit business. So mm-hmm. it was very about the numbers. And the numbers here, it, it matters, but it's more like, are we around the area that we should be 
And if we're under, it just comes out of the Michigan Theater Foundation's total budget because it's just one organization. Now, if Cinetopia was its own nonprofit organization, I'm sure it would be a lot more scrutinized with Mm -hmm. the incoming and outgoing funds. Definitely, we want Cinetopia to survive, but I think if it's going to survive longer, uh, we have to be a little bit more diligent about our finances. So what does that mean? A lot of, there's a lot of unplanned expenses that happen closer to the festival. So we, you know, we make all these plans for what we think it's going to be, and then once the festival starts, all of a sudden, oh, we need this pop-up screen for an outdoor screening. Oh my gosh, we need a bunch of signs that we didn't plan for. So like last-minute rush orders. (laughs) It really racks up the bill, and every single year we try to head those off earlier, um, but I think there's always still some sort of planning. And also... We just never know year to year how much funding we're going to be able to get through sponsorship and development. Mm -hmm. For example, this year, we did not get the Knight Foundation um, grant. And last year, we did. So we Mm -hmm. had a $50,000 deficit this year, which we tried really hard to make up. Mm -hmm. Um, We came up a little bit short. But, you know, those are the things that we have to work with. If we're $50,000 short, where does it come out in in the whole scheme of things? Right. Um, does it come out of marketing? Does it come out of operations? You know, there's mm-hmm. some things that you just can't cut. We're going to see how we end up after the festival this year. Mm-hmm. Before to see if you need to cut the budget next year or something. Would that be the option? It'll probably be to figure out how how many venues. I think the problem is how many venues we do this in. Okay. So, for example, like Cleveland International Film Festival, they use the Cineplex that's in a mall. So all of the infrastructure is there. Every there's tons of screens. Um, here, um, for example, like we we're going to show this film with the Charles Wright, but Charles Wright doesn't have DCP projection. Um, so we were looking into how much it would cost to outfit a DCP projector. DCP is a d- special form of digital projector. Yes, yes. Okay. And you know we looked into it, and the final cost was going to be like sixty grand. So we said nope. Can't do mm-hmm. that. Uh, hopefully, we can show it somewhere else and you know do uh, do the talk back there, yeah. which is what we ended up doing. But you know that would have been if if it was like ten grand, we might have leaned in and d- done it. Mm-hmm. But that's an unexpected ten grand. Yeah. You know that's an example of how costs could increase greatly. You know, so those are the things to consider when thinking about what to do next year. Mm-hmm. Um, I I feel pretty positive about this year. Our programming is really solid. Um, so I think we'll have a pretty big turnout. Did I see your opening night? Like, you're not selling tickets to that anymore? Uh, yeah, we, we have sold out of our advanced screening tickets, okay. or advanced tickets. We had 500 allotted mm-hmm. to sell online because we have to hold a certain number for pass holders, um, and the distributors are limiting us to only 1,000 seats. Oh, okay. So we could sell out all of our 1,700 seats, but... Um, they're not. They're restricting us to only showing it. To Why would a distributor do that? I think it's because they're releasing the film in a, like a couple months. Yeah, so July thirteenth is when eighth grade okay. comes out. Yeah, so um, they want to keep the numbers high for when it comes out officially. Interesting. <laughs> yes, there's a few restrictions like that that and we're experiencing. Is that just a product of? being a film festival between Sundance and summer and fall when 
these movies tend to come out. Yeah, and most of the, uh, a lot of the movies already found distribution, so we Mm -hmm. have to work with the distributors to negotiate, you know, when it's shown, how often it's shown. Mm -hmm. So the films that we have that are only showing once or twice, there's a reason for that. It's because our hands are tied. They're not trying, Mm -hmm. these films aren't trying to find distributors, because if they're trying to find distributors, they want to show as much as possible to get in front of as many eyes. But, you know, working with films that already have a distributor in place that are going to be released in a month or two, it's uh, it's a little bit tougher. But, uh, yeah, we're very excited that 8th um, Grade is going to be a huge hit for our opening night film. Yeah. You'll be hearing from Bo in this yeah. episode, in fact. Oh, great. Because, yeah, because <laughs> Bo Burnham will be here and he'll be doing his Q&A. And... Mm-hmm. Let, let's get into programming. I mean, we've already talked about this a little bit, but how do you balance films that you know will sell well, like 8th Grade, versus films that you just kind of want to have put out there, or films that might need that extra step toward distribution? Yeah, that's the um, that's the beauty of film festivals, is that people go in, they have that one or two that they're just so excited to see, but then they, because it's a film festival vibe, they sort of automatically go into it thinking like, oh, I'm going to discover something new mm-hmm. that I haven't considered before. And that's also another bonus of having a pass is that you don't have to make that you know single decision that I want to see this film. I'm going to take a chance on this film mm-hmm. that I have no idea if it's going to be good or bad. <laughs> um, you know, spend 12 or $15 on it and hope that it's not a waste of time. Mm-hmm. Um, having the passes is really good because it frees you up to make those decisions. Even the smaller films that are not as known. I'm really excited for some of them. A lot of them just have really great topics. That would be really interesting. And then there's also the ones that you just kind of hope that, like, if someone just planned out their evening, they're like, all right, I'm just going to go see a a string of movies. Mm -hmm. And um, they'll just see those just to take a chance on them because it's a film festival. You never Mm -hmm. know what you're going to get. Or that they can't get into one. And and they can get into the other one, and Mm -hmm. it might be something unexpected. They might really enjoy it. Are there examples of films that, like, people might just discover or examples of, you know, that kind of discovery film that you think might happen at Cinetopia? Yeah, there are some silent strengths. Um, There's this one film called Quiet Heroes, and it's a documentary. It's actually really fascinating. It's about um, this doctor in Utah that was the first and only person to treat patients with AIDS in the 70s. And it kind of seems like a very innocuous film, but it, the the subject is, cra- is crazy interesting. And the doctor, the nurse in the film, um, the directors, they're all going to be here for um, a Q&A afterwards. Oh, wow. So it's really jam-packed with special guest appearances, mm-hmm. but it's a film that, you know, isn't really pre-selling. And um, I think that's going to be one that... Um, if people did take a chance on it, they'll be very, they'll, they'll just be in love with it. Because in a, in a film festival, I think it really makes a huge difference, especially if there's um, people who made the film or were in the film are talking about it. It kind of really enhances the experience. So how important is film selection to the success of a festival? And how do you define success for this festival? Right. Um, it's, film selection is crucial because if you don't choose films that people in your market are interested in, it's going to be a bust. Yeah. Um, um, it's kind of like a betrayal. <laughs> like <laughs> if, if our audience goes to see films in the film festival and they're not anything like what they usually want to see, they'll never come back again next year. Right. 
because why would they? <laughs> but choosing the films, you know, we have a group of um, people that go out to these festivals and watch films. So, during, so a group go to Sundance, yeah. a group go to Toronto, things like that. Right. So we, um, a typically a, a large group of us always go to Sundance every year because one of the other organizations under the Michigan Theatre Foundation is the Art House Convergence, and mm-hmm. that's an annual conference that takes place in Park City, Utah. Where Sundance is. Where Sundance is. So, you know, like I think the three or four days prior to Sundance beginning is when we have our conference, and mm-hmm. then everyone who's at the conference goes off to Sundance. And so I think this year we had four four or five people at Sundance. Um, and, you know, a lot of our employee spouses are like, oh, wow, you get to watch movies all day. It is exhausting watching five movies every day <laughs> for five days. Um, How many times can you sit in a dark room? Yeah. I, I, went to, I went to Cleveland and I saw three films a day and I was exhausted. Mm-hmm. And one of my coworkers was there for five days and he came back and he said he saw 25 movies. Which is dedication, and I, I feel for the reporters who have to go or the critics oh, who yes. go and you know not only do they see five movies a day they write about them too. Right, right. You know, and then we have a few people that go to other film festivals. I think there's um, um, there's one in Missouri that a, a two of my programmers went to. Usually, someone goes to TIFF. Our executive director Russ Collins, he you know went to Berlin Film Festival. And that's actually when he saw The Big House, because it premiered at Berlin. <laughs> that's a big festival for The Big House yeah. to premiere in. Yeah, I, it's a cool film, though. I, yeah. So we have a, a lot of, you know, a lot of programmers just watching a lot of films. And then we also, you know, if we hear something about a film that we didn't see, we usually reach out to um, either the filmmaker or the distributor, if they have one at the time, ask mm-hmm. for screeners. Mm-hmm. So we'll watch um, screener. We'll have like a bunch of people in the office watch screeners and kind of get a unanimous decision or feeling if this is a good film that would fit within the Cinetopia Film Festival. Do you program. also use that for the Michigan and State Theater more broadly too? We do, yes, with um, special one-offs. Not the ones that are opening for a full run, um, but yeah, we definitely do. So we'll get approached by people or you know, something will be suggested and we always say, can we just watch a screener first? Because it also helps if we do decide to go forward with it, it helps with marketing and mm-hmm. figuring out who the audience is for some sort of random movie that is being brought to us. So that, that leads me right into my next question about audiences. So is the audience for Cinetopia mostly regular, you know, that regular Michigan theater core audience that goes mm-hmm. to see, you know, a lot of the movies that play there? Or do you bring in people ju- who come just for the festival itself. Mm-hmm. Um, the core audience is definitely our Michigan theater um, audience. They are very, very supportive of everything that we do. They love Cinetopia. We have people calling us. They're just telling us how excited they are, and they definitely got their passes, and they take advantage of... Um, we have member pricing with mm-hmm. all of our tickets and passes, and they definitely take advantage of it. So, you know, we know that our core audience... We know what they love to watch, so when we program for our festival, we just know the ones that are going to be winners with that audience. Mm-hmm. We do find that people outside of our core audience also look forward to Cinetopia. I, I heard um, someone who lives in Ohio says that he comes every single year, gets a hotel room, and just absorbs everything that Cinetopia is happening. That's cool. Yeah, it's really great. We want to attract newer audiences, ones that don't normally go to the Michigan or the state, um, because there is a film festival crowd as well that Mm -hmm. normally just hits festivals and doesn't really care too much about seeing movies regularly. 
but the majority are definitely already existing supporters and um, working with the other venues in Detroit, they have their members um, mm-hmm. and their members like going to their venues for their events. And so bringing film to their venues, uh, you know, to places that normally don't exhibit film, it's a, it's a really good bonus for them too. So does that expose films to that new audience then? Yeah, it, it does. It shows them different film that they might not normally have seen, but also kind of uses the space that they normally don't use, you know. Um, and it also, the idea of, you know, expanding into Detroit originally was because Detroit at the time did not have any kind of film festival. Now Detroit has a lot of small ones and then also the big one, which is the Free Film, film Festival, which is great. Uh, because the whole point of this originally was to get more art house eyes on the screen and having it in Detroit venues, getting access to all of these new people who, you know, travel from all over Metro Detroit area, um, for them to kind of get together and see a film that they normally wouldn't have, or they probably will never see because a lot of them might not get distribution or might not be in an art house theater near them. One last question that we're going to be addressing with the filmmakers that we're going to have in this episode as well. But how does inclusion in festivals help films financially? And what's the role of festivals for emerging filmmakers? And has that changed over time? I know very little about that. I can make some assumptions based on talking to filmmakers who are trying to get into film festivals. Um, basically, I believe you know having filmmaker films in film festivals sort of sort of validifies that there's an audience that want to see their film. So when they are approaching distributors, whether it's, you know, like a big distributor that gets you into theaters or if it's Netflix or Amazon Video, they, you know, showing that, oh, we played, you know, this film festival in front of, you know, X number of eyes. The audience really loved it. If they win awards, um, you know, like an audience award or any other type of awards. And that's the other part of the festival that is very important to them is that um, they're up for a bunch of different types of awards. Is Cinetopia, does Cinetopia have those too? So Cinetopia doesn't have all of the awards because, again, we're, we curated these films. They didn't come to us. Okay. Um, but we do have an audience award. So audiences do get a ballot after each screening and they, they kind of choose which ones they really they, they really liked, and then there will be a few winners of audience favorites. And that's a big deal, because we have laurels, and so it'll say official film selection of Cinetopia Film Festival, like audience favorites 2018. So having those types of distinctions are important to films, because it shows that it, it's kind of like, you know, if you have a product as a proof of concept, people are willing to buy into your product. So right. if we sell it on the mass market, there will definitely be more people. Ariel Wan, thank you very much for being here today. Yeah, thank you for having me. And now it's time to hear from the filmmakers. First up, comedian Bo Burnham, writer and director of 8th Grade, the film that opened the festival at the Michigan Theater in Ann Arbor. So tell me a little bit about what in, what led you to make the, the film 8th Grade. Um, you know, I wanted to talk about, I don't know, the initial thing was just wanting to talk about the internet. And then I sort of dug into the world of middle schoolers because it felt like I'd seen more high school movies than middle school movies. And then it felt right. And I think sort of America is sort of existing on an eighth grade level right now, so it's a good way to talk about what's <laughs> happening through eighth graders, you know? Yeah, yeah. So with this podcast, we're taking a look 
at how at what film festivals mean to more independent movies. Yeah. So, what's your opinion on that? I mean, what role do film festivals play in the release of a movie like yours, and what role do you think they play in terms of um, getting films seen? Yeah. Well, I mean, I like I can't. This is my first movie. This is all very new to me, so I can't speak too much to like the um, actual professional side of it. But like to be able to come here and share with a bunch of people and be part of a community of people that are passionate about film is so, so exciting. And, um, you know, the film world, the film festival world was a world I was very intimidated by before I sort of became a small part of it. And and once I became a part of it, I realized it's just such a wonderful and inclusive place. And to just be able to have um, movies shown in a community and shared and hopefully, I mean, you know, we're lucky enough to have distribution, but hopefully, you know, our movie coming here allows people to come see it and then maybe they go see the short film or, or the feature film that doesn't have distribution so yeah I, I'm in a very lucky position but it's it just a complete pleasure all around it's out, amazing out of curiosity did you have distribution before Sundance yeah yeah A24 they, they, they um, co-produced the movie so they co-financed the movie right. and were already distributors yeah it must be different going to Sundance with distribution yes. than without <laughs> yeah yeah I don't know I haven't been without but I can only assume it'd be way more way more stressful um, so we were lucky with that but yeah I mean it's things like this that that keep that happening and hopefully get films that wouldn't be seen seen um, so I'm very happy to be a small part of it very honored and the experience of Sundance was that how was that it was great it was amazing um, but you know going around to other ones they're all really engaging and fun this is incredible I mean, this is such a beautiful theater it's all incredible you know I, I noticed that the general vibe of the place is, is of filmmakers and artists supporting each other rather than competing with each other well both thank you very much for appreciate taking the time both. to talk yeah, to thank us thank you yeah appreciate it Next, at a press panel at the Michigan, we asked Kasim Basir, co-writer and director of A Boy, A Girl, A Dream, and Michael Curtis Johnson, writer and director of Savage Youth, about the role film festivals like Cinetopia play in helping emerging filmmakers get their film seen, and how they help films through the Hollywood process to eventually getting screened in movie theaters. The first voice you'll hear is Kasim Basir. The second is Michael Curtis Johnson. You don't get, like, with the emergence of, of Netflix, Amazon, and, you know, you don't, they're now releasing movies and playing them on VOD at the same time. So the necessity to go to the theater has decreased drastically. And so, one, for a distributor to watch your movie with an audience is the best chance you will ever have to find a distributor. When, so just a little education on this whoever, for whoever doesn't know but when you make a movie and you have a sales agent or you don't um, the dist- people will say well can you send us a link to your film and that's the last thing you want to want to do right it's like you send somebody a link, especially if it's not the link isn't out yet because if you send a link they are most most likely they might skip around they they'll most likely watch it on a laptop They'll most likely be getting phone calls and text messages in between. It's just, and they'll tell you, oh no, I'm gonna watch it. You know, like, can you please watch it on the screen at least? Like, yeah, sure, we'll do that. And then, <laughs> it might be during the day, you know, the lighting isn't. So to be in an audience, like, look at this theater. To be in a place like this with 500 people who are sitting there with mouths to the, you know, jaws to the floor, like, you know, laughing. It's a, that energy, nothing replaces that. And, it, and, it, and it, change, it changes everything in terms of someone wanting to pick up your film or not. Because even if they don't like it, they know that all of these people do. You know what I mean? They don't have to like it, but they, 
because a lot of a lot of executives and these and these distributors not, aren't necessarily artists really a lot of them might have law degrees or, or might be you know corporate corporate folks who never who never really made a film or, or don't know film history so so they're looking often for audiences to tell them and if you're in a room with a couple hundred people that are like feeling your movie that energy is palpable like you cannot deny it yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's it's hard. I mean, it's hard. It's hard not to be cynical about a lot of this stuff in terms of like the industry and you know, the gatekeepers and showing your film and getting it in their hands and things like that. But I do believe that you know film festivals have been around for almost as long as films have been around for, and for them to still be here, um, it just shows you how important the role is. And I really do believe, at least I have a hope, that there's going to be something a little bit more decentralized about the filmmaking process. You know, um, Hollywood is just, they're making bigger movies with larger budgets, and a lot of those movies that I feel like filmmakers enjoy, I, I think there's a larger audience for them. There obviously was in the 70s, you know, the, these human stories that are being told. I think the ability to tell them, you know, we can do a lot more with a lot less, and and I think there's still sort of this system sometimes of trying to make that sort of smaller version of a big movie so that one day you'll get, be able to sort of like go on and make something bigger. Where I think, you know, film, film festivals and especially the theatrical aspect open a lot of doors and possibilities for filmmakers to actually, you know, find financing for the type of films that they want to make, find collaborators that they want to work with. You know, I don't know if bringing, going to a certain film festival might necessarily get my film sold right away, but I do know that I've, I've already met collaborators over the part of the process. I've already met people who I feel are making my work better um, as I continue on, and so I think that's a part that's not quantifiable, that you can't really stick to, but but for me, you know, as a filmmaker working in the industry and wanting to do the type of projects that I want to do, you, you couldn't do it without film festivals. I mean, you, I mean, how else are they going to be seen? <laughs> so, um, uh, at least initially. So, um, but yeah, hopefully that distribution opens up, theatrical distribution opens up a little bit more regionally. Um, and I think film festivals are going to have to play a part in that. Finally, we talked to photographer and artist Michael Dweck. We caught up with him at a screening of his first film at the Henry Ford Museum in Dearborn. His film, The Last Race, is about a small-town racetrack. So, Michael Dweck, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Hey, thanks for having me. Just to get started here, what you, this is your first film that it you're is, making, correct? Right? So film. what led you down this path into making this movie? Well, I was, I'm a fine art photographer, and um, uh, initially what I wanted to do was to just photograph this racetrack and these cars. I was raised next to a racetrack from when I was three years old until I was 18. That racetrack closed, and that was a very important part of my childhood. And at the time I lived in Long Island, there were 40 racetracks, and eventually they were all paved over one by one until there was only one left. And I decided to devote five years of my life to photographing uh, these cars and this racetrack, because these cars were all from the 1960s and 70s, to me they were beautiful art objects. And I want to memorialize them before they were all gone. So I spent every single weekend uh, photographing these cars. I cut the cars apart. I sandblasted them. I photographed them as, as sacred objects, how they would be photographed 100 years from now, when there will be no more cars. And that led me into the film. I, I, actually, I felt that um, I could not, as hard as I tried with photography, I could not capture the emotion nor the emotion of this place with two-dimensional photographs. So I decided to embark on the crazy journey of making a feature film. Wow. 
the kind of general guiding question that we're using for the our filmmaker interviews here is what do you think are the role of film festivals like Cinetopia and Sundance where your film premiered in helping get films like yours seen? Well, it's interesting. Um, when uh, you know when you go to Sundance, the next day you get invited to Robert Redford's place, and uh, you and your competitors get invited there, and he tells you are other films competitors. They are because it's called a competition, <laughs> so it's the first time you actually meet all at a table, mm-hmm. and there's 14 of us, and uh, and Robert Redford shares with you why he started the Sundance Film Festival, mid-career for Robert Redford. F had already won Academy Awards and had very successful movies. He wanted to embark on just making his own films, mm-hmm. films that he thought were important to him. Uh, after he'd already been an award, you know, Academy Award-winning actor, director. And he said, well, you know, I'm going to go to Hollywood. I'm going to you know, write a script. I'm going to direct a, direct a script and see what happens. And Hollywood just didn't let him do it. It took him five years, and it failed because they, they made it fail. And he, and he did it two more times, and he said, look, I did not want this to happen to you guys. I wanted a place for independent films uh, and voices that weren't necessarily commercial voices, mm-hmm. a place where that could be shown and seen. And that's why he started Sundance Film Festival. And I think that's why, of course, other film festivals are there, too. It's a place where... Luckily, it's a home for voices that aren't necessarily uh, have a, 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 a super broad appeal to them. It's a place where you take risks as a filmmaker. In my particular film, I, this is my first film, and uh, I decided to just, I don't have a main character. Uh, my main character is a racetrack. Do documentaries usually have kind of main characters in the way that you would think in uh, narrative features? Uh, well, I think a lot of times, they, yeah, I think they do. I think a lot of times they focus on a, a main character, a journey of a main character, uh, or a, a several bunch, several characters. They don't have protagonists and antagonists like narrative films do, but they do concentrate, um, usually follow the life of character or characters. In my case, you're not. In my case, I decided as a photographer, I'm going to immerse you into this place, and I want you to feel how I felt in this place. And, and that was by welding 20 movie cameras onto race cars, by putting 15 microphones all over people and cars and mm-hmm. hot dog stands and french fry machines and you know old speakerphones. And so you know, I, I decided that's what kind of made me feel right about this place. And then I had to figure out how to put it together because I didn't have a story. There wasn't really a clear-cut story. It wasn't an arc of a, of a main character. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and Sundance, luckily, um, you know, saw that as being... A different, a different way of telling a story, and uh, and accepted it. So, you premiere at Sundance, mm-hmm. and now, from what I've heard, you've been you're just being distributed by Magnolia Pictures in the fall. Or that is true. Is there a correlation there? Hundred percent, hundred percent. I think uh, that I, I, there's no way um, this film would have distribution uh, without uh, without Sundance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, you know, Sundance is, of course, there's a lot of great films there, and um, and you hope that's you know the, the the appropriate distributors come to see your film and they fall in love with your film and distribute it. So for me, I'm, I'm extremely fortunate as a first-time filmmaker. Now I'm doing two more films because of that, and I wouldn't have that opportunity if it wasn't. I'm writing, I'm writing a film right now, a narrative film, and I'm working on another documentary that's also a hybrid, not quite a documentary in traditional form, but I'm working on that, and that's all from film festivals. So what is the process for getting a film like the one you've made in The Last Race made? You know, I'm assuming you have to seek financing, and that's Bring, that brings its own set of challenges. So do you mind talking a little bit about those? Oh, sure. 
Well, when I set out to do this film, I thought it would take me a month. That's what I really thought. And, uh, and it actually took me five more years. It took me five years to do photography and five more years to work on a film. And, uh, and, I, and I didn't know much about it, but, what, but the way I work is that I, I got so excited and so, uh, and so engrossed in the experience, I just wanted to keep it going. But that involves money, as you've asked. So um, I learned about sound crews and I learned about operating cameras and I have a lot of I made a lot of friends and I just had a lot of favors I needed to, you know at one point we started with one camera and then by the time I was deep into the project I was at 15 and 18 and 20 cameras and uh, and yeah so you go to I went to I went to people I put a trailer together of just from one day of shooting I invited all the people that that collected my work my, my photography and invited him to come to a, pre- a preview of the trailer and beg for money and, and nobody gave me any money except one person who happens to have the same name I do who's not related to me and that's how we met and uh, and I was very fortunate so he you know he gave me some money which was great and then I had to go back for more money and and I didn't know at the time about grants I didn't know how that works uh, I didn't I knew nothing about it and now with this new film there are grants with this new film like we applied for to, for Sundance. Um, they have something called the Catalyst, and uh, you know we got luckily accepted into the Catalyst program. They give you some some money for development, and then you can go back and get money for production and post production, and that leads to all these other grants. You know, and that's I think is really part of it for for a new for a filmmaker, a first time filmmaker, or you know, second third time filmmaker. To me, it would be good to you 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 pick um, you you try to choose carefully where to get financing from. You try to you try to figure out who the champions of your film are, right? Who is it, who are people going to relate to the topic that your film and uh, and there are a lot of you know it, it, it's a shame in the U.S. that we don't have government funding for films. There are I, I edited the film in Copenhagen, and a lot of the sound design was done in Finland, and uh, and there they, they provide money. All the Scandinavian countries support films. Even Italy, Italy supporting the new film I'm doing, and an American filmmaker. But the United States really doesn't have that. The government doesn't have programs like that. It's all private funding. So the process was that. Yeah, the process was shooting, stopping, getting more money. Taking some time off, getting some cameras, learning a bit more, spending the money, <laughs> borrowing money, you know, and uh, and then you know then it comes time to post production, which is very expensive. Editors, editors, don't do favors because you're asking somebody to spend six months of their life on your project, and, and that's documentaries too. are challenging edits as well. Yeah, it's find an editor that just gets it, and um, in my in my case, this film was finished three years ago. And I didn't like it. We edited the film. I shot 360 hours of footage. And it's not like run and gun. This is like, you know, footage mm-hmm. where I took my time and framed all my shots. And uh, I just knew my story was going to come from. Um, I didn't know about filmmaking, didn't know about editing. So I sat with an editor and I, and I just said to him, okay, well, edit my film. Mm-hmm. And what ended up happening was it was, a, it was a good film. It wasn't the film I wanted to make. It was the film that, that he made. And it, he was a very good editor, just that I didn't know how to guide him. I didn't know enough mm-hmm. about filmmaking. And I just didn't want to submit that film. And then I waited. I looked at all my footage. I, I sat down and I selected everything that I thought was great in my footage. And none of that was in that cut. Wow. But that led me to, well, now what do I do with these moments? Mm-hmm. These moments that, that really are juxtaposing moments. What do you do with that? And that, that was, you know, then I, I called another filmmaker, Josh Oppenheimer, who made The Act of Killing. It's probably the best documentary film ever made. And... Um, uh, and I had met his editor by coincidence in a trip to Denmark, and you know we kind of hit it off, and uh, we we spent three weeks together. Didn't work. We spent fourth week together worked really well, and then we spent three months together. Wow. You know, putting his film together, and then I um, and I was going back and forth to New York, get more money, mm-hmm. go back, and the same with sound design. I needed to get more money. I ran out of money, and I want the I want the sound artist. 
mm-hmm. and what they want in Copenhagen and how to pay for that so that, you know, borrow more money. You know, and the yeah. hope is, the hope is that you, I mean, I don't, I don't think I ever did it to, to think that I was going to get the film distributed. I think I did it because I wanted the world to just see this particular piece of my work. I never really think even my photographs are anybody's going to buy anything. I just think it's something inside me I want to get out. I just realize how long it's going to take to get out. I didn't, if I knew it was five years, I, I don't think I would have I would have embarked on that journey. It's a long time. That, five it's years a struggle. is a long time. It's a struggle. It's hard. And film festivals, you know. And I think it's also important for filmmakers to write the film. You know, there's an opportunity when you're submitting a film to write a letter. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to write a letter and to personalize the letter to that festival and to submit to festivals you think that are relevant to your film. Don't mm-hmm. waste your time. If, uh, if a film festival has, you know, social issues in Eastern Europe and you're submitting a film about, uh, you, know, you, know, Florida, you know, Florida flamingos, it's probably not going to fly. So I think that's important also to write letters, personal letters, outside of the system, mm-hmm. the actual system of entering a film through, like, without a box, and, um, is, to, is to actually write a personal letter to the programmers. Mm-hmm. Write a personal letter and tell, them, and tell them how you feel about your film and why you think it's appropriate to be seen in a film festival. That works. They read those letters, and I think that helps a lot. Because they get, you know, Sunday's got 14,000 films. Mm-hmm. And you want to let them know yours is coming, and it's special. Yeah. You know, and I, and I did that. I wrote all the ones I wanted to get into. I wrote, you know. And so you're, you're, you were at Sundance, you're at Cinetopia now. Were yeah. there any other stops along the way, or are there any future plan before release? Um, well, the great thing about Cinetopia, of course, is that my dream is to show the film in Detroit. Because yeah. it's a car film, and that was like my that was my dream before I when I when I first started do the photographs. My dream was to show the photographs in Detroit, mm-hmm. let alone a film. So I'm super happy to film this. Here. Well, we showed it in the Florida Film Festival, uh, which is in Winter Park, and we showed that in um, uh, about in April this year because the um, the CEO of NASCAR lives five blocks away, and we want to be seen. And also Barbara, who is you know one of the main characters in the film, Barbara is um, lives in Miami, mm-hmm. you know, so we want to make convenient for her to come see the film, but. Jim broke a rib on the way there, so we, they turned back. So, so this is the first time she's seeing us tonight. Wow. Yeah, which is great. Well, Michael Dweck, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me today. Oh, thank you. And that's it for this edition of Media Business Matters. You can find more about our show by going to amandalots.com and clicking on the podcast link at the top of the page. For new episodes, as soon as they're available, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and on the Google Play Store. You can find Amanda on Twitter at DrTVLots and me at Alex Entner. That's Alex, I-N-T-N-E-R. We'd like to thank the voices that you heard in this episode. Ariel Wan, Bo Burnham, Kasim Basir, Michael Curtis Johnson, and Michael Dweck. And thank you all for listening. Amanda and I will be back soon to launch our next interview series on local media. So stay tuned for that.